Welcome to the Cambridge Tech Podcast, talking all things technology from the heart of the UK's tech capital. Here are your hosts, Faye Holland and James Parton. I'm Faye. And I'm James. Joining us today is a very special guest, Dr. Herman Hauser, the co-founder of Acorn Computers, Arm, Amadeus Venture Capital, and so much more. Herman, welcome to Cambridge Tech Podcast. Thank you so much for being with us today. You're back in Cambridge. <laughs> well, it's crazy at the moment. Uh, I arrived a fortnight ago, and in the last 10 days, I was in five different countries. <laughs> well, that does sound pretty stressful. <laughs> um, We've got a few questions just to kind of get to know a little bit about your kind of background and the way that you kind of see the world. So I believe uh, in your early teens, you kind of self-taught yourself quantum physics and relativity, which wasn't necessarily taught in the curriculum at the time. No, certainly not in my primary school, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, with that kind of initiative in mind, what's your kind of take on how we should be engaging children in school today with some of the technologies of the future that we're certainly going to be touching on in this conversation? Well, I do feel that STEM subjects uh, are uh, just a very important uh, set of subjects to get young pupils acquainted with long before uh, they go to university. And I have a particular sweet spot for mathematics. So if, if people ask me to recommend a single subject, I would always go for mathematics because uh, mathematics is the foundation of uh, everything else. And it's also the one subject uh, that is difficult to do later on in life. I remember I went back to molecular cell biology lectures at university for a couple of years when I was 50 years old. Now, uh, molecular cell biology, you know, is a very exciting subject, very, very important subject, but one that you can master even if you're 50 uh, years old. The intricacies of uh, mathematics are best acquired early on. Mathematics is a is an interesting. I thought you were going to say physics. I know that when you were younger, you were told that you'd never make any money out of studying physics, which is is quite funny. And um, what would you say to that now, and to those that are studying physics today? Well, uh, as it as it turned out, I did manage to make some money with physics with my uh, education in physics, and uh, it's uh, much more important now than it was uh, then. But it's not just physics. It's really any STEM subjects. It's uh, uh, physics, biology, chemistry, but the foundation of all of them is mathematics and, of course, computer science now. And do, do you think that we're doing enough? You know, we were talking before we actually came on to the recording. You know, there's an awful lot of time and effort been invested in STEM. Do you think that we're doing enough or should we be doing much more? No, uh, we're not doing enough uh, by a country mile. If you look at our ratings in the world compared with China and other countries, uh, we're just uh, falling behind more and more in STEM subjects. And that's where the, where the future of uh, humanity lies. So we need to redouble our effort in, in STEM subjects. Do you think that that's the responsibility of the public sector, of governments, you know, and education systems to do that? Or how much do you think it's a responsibility of the businesses to actually make sure that the, you know, people are being educated in a way that's going to be useful for them? Well, we need both. Uh, clearly, the direction has to come from government, 
but sadly, uh, you know, government is not exactly uh, full of uh, STEM graduates. Uh, I think the, if you look at the root cause for our problems, it's really the triumph of rhetoric uh, over rational decision making. It's really these uh, Oxford Union orators uh, that seem to be winning against uh, rational arguments uh, every time, Brexit, of course, being the supreme sad example. Yeah, and it's it's funny, but so a lot of the content we talk about on this podcast, it's getting more and more tied into politics and, you know, what should be being done. So I'm sure that that won't be the, the last question we have that leads back to back in that direction. No, but uh, switching gears slightly, why don't we start just kind of exploring some of your career highlights, which in itself would probably take a few hours. But let's start with Acorn and say perhaps the BBC Micro, in fact, continuing to some degree that education theme. So would you say that, you know, the BBC Micro started the home computing revolution in the UK? That must be something you're very proud of? Yes, I am. And it's not just the BBC Micro, of course. We mustn't forget that Sinclair uh, had a, a very important role to play there as well. And it was that wonderful period when uh, Sinclair and uh, Acorn were the two dominant uh, PC companies uh, in in the UK and in Europe, where we had an early lead in educational computing. And you'll have to indulge me. I've got to ask the question about, you know, off the back of the Micro Men TV movie by the BBC. Was it was it really all out war with Sinclair as it was depicted in the in the TV movie? I wouldn't say it was all out war, but it was certainly a feisty competition, which uh, I think brought the best uh, out of both companies. It was very healthy to have that competition. And great for Cambridge. On that, how did you differentiate yourself then from Sinclair? You know, what were the what was the vision? What was you know what were the objectives you were trying to achieve? We had lots of people in in Acorn that uh, had played with uh, uh, Sinclair products before, and and felt that they weren't quite as good as they could be. So we were the perfectionists, if you like, that made things you know, work properly. Or so we thought, <laughs> rather than the shortcuts that Sinclair sometimes took. Uh, it must be said, though, that the, the Sinclair products, the computer products at the time, which were cheaper, uh, were also very, very good products. So just moving on a little bit from, from Acorn, when we were preparing for the conversation with you, I've read somewhere that you then went to Olivetti as vice president of research and your first boss at the time, um, El Serino Piol, I hope I've said that correctly, who's Olivetti's vice chairman, he treated you a little bit like an apprentice, I, I, I seem to understand, and taught you all about venture capital business. So is that correct? How, and, and do you think that his lessons that at that you know earlier age stood you in good stead for what you do now? Yes, it certainly did. Uh, but he didn't treat me as an apprentice. He actually called me his younger brother. And I did feel that he was uh, my, uh, like my older brother. But he certainly taught me a lot about venture capital because he was the first senior executive of a very large company, which, uh, of course, Olivetti was at the time, the dominant PC company in Europe. He was the first senior person that started corporate venturing. So I really learned corporate venturing with him because I did it together with him. Do you still use all of that knowledge now, or is there any specific tip that he gave you that you can share? Well, sadly, he, he died just a few months ago at the age of uh, 91, and he was the only boss I've ever had in, in my life, and it was a wonderful experience. I really, I visited him just three years ago in, in Milano. Of course, he was uh, retired, and it was wonderful 
uh, to see him again. Well, he had that sort of visceral excitement about turning technology into successful businesses that you rarely see in top executives of very large companies. So apart from being uh, you know, a superb large company executive, uh, which he was, uh, he was a strategist. So he was always looking at the next technology companies that would disrupt markets. And it was him that turned Olivetti from a 7 billion euro PC company into a 20 billion telecoms company uh, called Omnitel, and then they bought Telecom Italia. So although Olivetti doesn't exist anymore, the Olivetti shareholders uh, are now happy shareholders of Telecom Italia. So I think that then leads us on to your next, you know, um, landmark Cambridge business, which was which is Arm. Obviously, with hindsight, it looks like an obvious thing to have done. But you know, back then, maybe you could kind of talk us through the opportunity that you saw with your co-founders and what the kind of gap in the market was, because. I guess perceived wisdom at the time as always, you know, faster and faster processes, increasingly more expensive, being at the cutting edge. Whereas you took a, you know, a very different approach with ARM. Could you, could you kind of walk us through that thinking? Yes, uh, I'm very happy to. Uh, well, first of all, it was a totally crazy decision, of course, for a very small uh, computer company in, in in Cambridge to produce its own microprocessor, and we didn't really see a market opportunity at all. We saw a pressure to uh, get more performance, uh, uh, a higher performance microprocessor for the follow-on to the BBC Micro. We had the 6502, which was an 8-bit microprocessor. It was clear that we needed at least a 16-bit, preferably a 32-bit microprocessor. We looked at every single one in the world, including the Intel 8086. We went to Intel, asked them if we could change the pinouts because we didn't like the pinouts that they had, they said, get lost, quite rightly so, you know, with hindsight, why would they change the pinout for a, a, a tiny, you know, computer company in Cambridge? Uh, so we said, what? <laughs> you know, because we were quite arrogant at the time, we had 60% of the PC market in the UK, we thought we were a very important company. So we said to Intel, well, you get lost. We'll do our own. If they had given us the pinout for the 8086, we would have never started arms. So uh, given that uh, they are now paying $10 billion to invest in the ARM IPO, it's a, it's a big turnaround in their attitude towards ARM. And another kind of uh, fundamental innovation was the business model. You know, going for an IP licensing model was unusual at the time. Uh, what was the thinking there? Well, <laughs> we didn't have that business model. Uh, our business model was to produce a chip for ourselves. ARM, of course, stood for the Acorn Risk Machine. And it was only when we realized it makes no sense to produce a processor just for ourselves, El Serino Piol and myself uh, went around the world for three years to find a, an investor in ARM to spin it out of, uh, of Acorn. And we finally found, um, well, I found uh, Larry Tesla at, uh, at Apple who gave us one and a half million for 43% of ARM to spin it out into a separate company. And uh, John Scully said that had Apple not been able to sell uh, their one and a half million dollar stake for 800 millions, Apple at the time would have gone bust. So we we were actually saving Apple from, from their own demise because of the 800 million that they managed to get from the 
ARM shares just before Steve Jobs came back when Apple was in in great difficulty. Mm. And and just before I hand back to Faye, many uh, successful startup founders always cite slices of luck as well as judgment for their success. Did you have an, an inkling or an insight in terms of the the future opportunity that would be presented by mobile devices, specifically you know the Nokia relationship that you built, or was it just a case of the stars aligned perfectly for you? Uh, we had absolutely no idea that uh, that or Nokia wanted that. And when they came to see us with that, what on earth do you want with a, such a powerful processor and a mobile phone? It's a total waste of time. Uh, but they they insisted on it. And they then also pushed us into the licensing model. This was not a, an idea that Robin came up with, but one that he, he realized uh, was the only possibility to sell to Nokia, which at that time had a 60% worldwide market share in, in mobile phones. So the adoption of ARM by Nokia really was the, the making of uh, the ARM standard in the mobile phone industry. So I think that it's a really good introduction to those that haven't heard um, from you before, Herman, that are listening in to the podcast. So I, I have one question based on those early career deliverables that you did, which is if you had to pick one of them, which would you say is your greatest achievement? Is it the risk processor? Is it the idea of getting schools, um, computers into schools? Or is it the idea of licensing your design for a chip instead of selling computers? Well, uh, you know, from a financial uh, success point of view, uh, clearly ARM is the uh, is the greatest achievement. Actually, together with uh, with Illumina, Illumina is also worth uh, fifty billion now, which is a Cambridge technology called Selexa, which revolutionised gene sequencing. But ARM is probably the uh, the company that I'm best uh, uh, known for because it set the the standard uh, in mobile phones, and it's also uh, you know a fantastic financial success. From an impact on a society point of view, laying the foundation for really the software industry uh, in in the UK and changing the curriculum in British schools with the BBC Micro to create so many competent computer scientists that all grew up on BBC Micro uh, is probably the one that is the most uh, satisfying. I mean, I've just had a recent experience again, probably the, the most exciting investment right now that I have is a Vancouver-based company called Photonic, which is a quantum computer company. It has the chance to be the defining quantum computer company in the world. And the person, the CEO, is called Paul Terry. He is uh, a Brit, and he grew up on a BBC Micro, which was one of the first things that he said when uh, when we met. So, you know, there's still people around that... Uh, remember that uh, fondly and and felt that the BBC Micro had a significant influence on their lives. So Herman, one of the many things that you do to support uh, the next generation of entrepreneurs um, was setting up Amadeus Capital. Maybe you could share some of the kind of highlights from those 25 years in the companies that you funded and um, and just how actively are you involved still with the portfolio companies? Well, to answer the second question first, very, very active. I'm still on, on, on six boards. Uh, I really uh, enjoy working with Amadeus on, on deep technology startups. And we've been very lucky that uh, in the course of the 25 years, I've been involved in seven unicorns, two of which have become Decacorns, uh, Arm and Illumina. And we've managed to make contributions, not just in the chip industry, but um, later when molecular cell biology became such an important subject and life science took over as the 
number one sector in Cambridge. I'm actually doing more life science investments uh, than chip investments uh, right now. And uh, probably the the most astonishing uh, investment that we've just made recently is in a in a breakthrough company called Constructive Bio, which adds uh, non-canonical amino acids to normal proteins. So life is built on 20 amino acids that all life forms share. There's a genetic code that just codes for these 20 amino acids. And this breakthrough idea from uh, Jason Chin at the MRC, Jason discovered a way of incorporating man-made amino acids into proteins, which extends the capability of us doing things with cells that could never be done before, like making fermentation much more efficient than it's ever been before. So this might change the chemical industry to allow chemical processes to proceed along biological processes, which are, of course, a lot less environmentally damaging. You brought in life sciences there. I'm going to bring it a little bit back to tech um, because it is Cambridge Tech Podcast after all. And one of the things you're really well known for and respected for is the whole journey of, you know, what what has happened with computing over the decades. So without going back through all of that, what I actually wanted to do was, if we can, focus a little bit more on quantum, which I know you talk about quite openly. So, you know, in terms of some of those companies, I know you're a board director of Planck, who's building the computers, and also Riverlane here in Cambridge that's building the operating systems. So my question to you is, could you tell us something about quantum that maybe we don't talk about? So something about maybe the future of it or or the applications of it, something that isn't generally known, although one could argue there's an awful lot that isn't known yet about quantum. Well, that is, of course, uh, very true. Well, it is such a fundamental breakthrough. It is really a complete uh, reimagination of computing uh, from a, a totally different standpoint. So uh, classical computing, as it's now known, is something that uh, I grew up with and I made some small contributions to. So I actually lived through the creation of the classical computer stack, uh, you know, from the chips to the uh, the circuit boards, and then you build the computers, you write the operating system, the applications, and then you service it, and you link them through telecoms networks. And this is a, a very sophisticated industry now. With quantum, the whole thing gets reimagined on really a completely different basis, uh, which is basically the basis of single electrons or single ions. I'm sure everybody knows that we've been shrinking transistors down to smaller and smaller dimensions. We're now at sort of five nanometers going to three nanometers, which means that these transistors only have a few handful of electrons. And since it's statistical, these electrons don't always do what you want them to do. In quantum, uh, you take an extreme next step. Uh, you don't use the statistics of a, of a group of electrons, but you pick a single electron. And these single electrons have a spin up or a spin down, and you can make a qubit out of that called a quantum bit. And when you use these quantum bits, they're very fickle, uh, they're very temperamental, but when you link them up, the, the performance of the quantum computer goes exponentially with the number of qubits that you have, as opposed to linearly 
with the number of bits you have in a classical computer. So the potential performance increases uh, of a quantum computer are so fundamental and they're so spectacular that you can solve problems that will never be solved by uh, classical computing. And the most exciting problems long-term are uh, really molecular problems uh, because molecules, of course, live in a quantum world. Richard Feynman, the Nobel laureate in physics, famously said, why on earth would you like to try and simulate a quantum molecule with a classical computer? The natural way to understand uh, molecules is, of course, to use a quantum computer. And the long-term vision there is that you could do drug trials in silico. So understanding how a drug might fit into a protein that then changes the property of the protein and, and cures illnesses, that's really the biggest benefit we might gain long-term from quantum computers. So you talk there about long-term kind of applications and benefits. What's your view on like how, how far away are we from seeing deployment of quantum-based use cases? Well, I'm uh, much more optimistic than uh, many people in the industry because uh, I've, I've seen how fast the, the field is developing. So I think we will have quantum computers in five years that can do things that practical things that no classical computer can do. Right. You mentioned the company in the US um, that you think is really going to lead the the quantum revolution. I'm bringing it back to the UK, and I suppose we're half there because he is a Brit in it, leading that company. But do you think that the UK can really contribute to the quantum computing market? And do you think potentially they can lead it or are we not going to get there because the government will make the same mistakes as they did with the semiconductor industry, for example? Well, for once, you know, this is a very rare thing to do, is you've got to recommend a government for doing the right thing and doing the right thing at the right time. Osborne gave the quantum computing industry $270 million at the time when people didn't even know what quantum was. So it was really surprising that the, the Cameron government, albeit under good advice from physicists, put enough early money uh, which means that Britain now has a healthy uh, set of startups in uh, quantum computing. You mentioned River Lane. There is uh, Oxford Ionic, uh, Universal Quantum, Oxford Quantum Circuits, New Quantum. So uh, we really have got uh, a very rich set of quantum startups. And now, and again, uh, one's got to praise the government for it, the government uh, is putting two and a half billion pounds into uh, the quantum sector it must be said, following uh, uh, Germany and, and France, but, but they're, they're doing it. And again, it's Sir Peter Knight who convinced Osborne originally to put up the 270 million. Peter has managed to convince the government that this is the right thing to do and it gives us a chance to be right up there with the best players in the world. You did promise we'd come back and talk about politics. Yeah. So it's good that the government actually gets some praise there. Supercomputing is becoming an essential tool of life sciences and pharmaceutical research. And increasingly, computing hardware is moving off-premise and into industrial-scale data center facilities or the cloud. Operating award-winning data centers close to Cambridge, KO Data is proud to host Cambridge One, the UK's most powerful supercomputer, accelerating health research that spans medical imaging, genomics and drug discovery. 
With computing power and space available immediately and excellent connectivity to Cambridge's research parks and the cloud, KO Data is ideally placed to support advanced computing organisations of all shapes and sizes. Get in touch today at kodata.com contact. So, Herman, another area of computing is DNA computing. It would be great to get your thoughts on maybe just an explanation of DNA computing and, and again, what some applications of that might look like and uh, what does the market opportunity for DNA computing look like? Well, there, there are really two types of DNA computing. Uh, one is to use the structure of DNA to basically replicate what a traditional computer did, or a classical computer. So you just replace the transistor building blocks with uh, DNA building blocks. And that really hasn't been particularly successful. But there is a very exciting new way of thinking about DNA computing, which is taking the intrinsic advantage of the structure of DNA being actually very good at encoding a very large number of different versions of the same problem, and then selecting the one that's, uh, that's the solution. And there's, there's actually a Cambridge startup called uh, DNA Ascension, which is uh, using that approach to uh, crack NP-hard problems, which are really the, the hardest problems that still remain unsolved, and solve it in a completely new way, using the fact that you can have so many different copies of DNA. So normally in a computer, you know, you have a particular size of computer and you run the problem and you try to make the computer run faster and faster. And a very hard problem is to parallelize it and have lots of computers run at the same time. The approach there with the DNA computer is you can build so many replicas of the DNA problem that you can parallelize things to the tomb of Avogadro's number. So, you know, that's 10 to the 23. So say you've got 10 to the 16 or 10, 10 to the 18 different uh, computers running at the same time. There has never been anybody thinking about 10 to the 16, so that's um, a billion, billion processors running at the same time. So it's a sort of breadth-first uh, approach. It's a very exciting new way of thinking about computing. And it's particularly powerful for NP-hard problems. These are non-deterministic polynomial problems. So these are optimization problems like the traveling salesman problem, and they're the hardest uh, problems that have resisted any classical computers to crack it. You've also been hugely engaged on conversations around artificial intelligence. And I know, you know, there's, we've got intelligence that we've been using for, for decades, which is really just expediting the things that we would do as, as human beings. But in the media now, let's say there's a fair amount of negative um, press going on around AI. So I'm, I'm interested to know what your thoughts are on that. Is it a lot of, of hype and conjecture or are there the real issues there? So w what do we need to know? Well, first of all, it's not just hype. This thing really works. So we're already seeing productivity increases of 30% across a number of problems and industry sectors. So this is very powerful. The second thing to say is I've been through a number of these uh, new technology introductions, and the discussion is always the same, that uh, you know they'll take over from us, uh, there will be a lot of unemployment. So far, we've always created more new jobs than we've created old jobs. 
Now, these transitions are often quite painful because, of course, the new jobs are not the same as the old jobs. Uh, so there are people that will be losing their jobs and they will have to adapt and retrain. But so far, this has never resulted in mass unemployment. That doesn't mean that it might not happen this time around. But I'm, I'm optimistic that the benefits uh, will far outweigh the risks just because it addresses the key parameter for making us better off which is increasing the productivity of individual workers. And is that the one thing you would get? If you, if you could w- wave your magic wand and pick one thing for AI to do, what, what would it be? Personally, it's um, to show up all the people that lie. Oh, okay. <laughs> Interesting. Which I, you know, I consider is, the, uh, is at the bottom of the political problem that we have. We have a particularly sad case, of course, with Boris Johnson, who you know, is one of the few that actually actually been proven to be a compulsive liar. But I'm, I'm afraid it's much more widespread. So one of the visions I've had about 10 years ago in a talk that I gave, which was what's next, was something I called the evidence engine. And the evidence engine would be a ticker tape at the bottom of the TV screen that would, in real time, show you the evidence for whatever a politician says, in which case uh, the little worm would be green, or the enormous amount of evidence to contradict what the person have just said, in which case the worm would be at the bottom and would be red, And if there is neither any evidence for or any evidence again, it would hover in the middle in a brown color to make clear that this is just straightforward bullshit. (laughs) That that sounds like something that we would probably all vote for right now. (laughs) Right. Well, I'm pleased to hear that because I've been talking to the top uh, AI guys in the world when they believe that such an evidence engine could be built. And a number of them said, Probably one year. Really? Okay, Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. So that would show up uh, uh, people like Boris before he ever climbs the greasy ladder to become prime minister because we'd we'd notice that he's been lying all along rather than having to have the parliament um, prove it to him. Well, we'll definitely watch this space because that sounds like a, a very interesting development. So let's transition on to Cambridge. You've, you've clearly been an integral part of the creation of the Cambridge cluster. What's your thoughts of uh, the role that Cambridge has to play on a global stage today? Well, Cambridge has established itself as probably the number one a deep technology centre in Europe, if not the world. One must say that Silicon Valley is probably still the leading area. And with that recognition goes the ability to attract uh, venture capital. We now have a number of local venture capital firms, of course, including Amadeus, but a number of others as well. We can attract a lot of outsider money as well from from Europe and from the US. So the whole system is really seems to be firing on all cylinders at the moment, but so is everybody else in the world. So Silicon Valley is still at the top. The UK here, Europe here, and Austria, my native Austria, right down there, it used to be a very steep gradient. The order is still the same, but the gradient has become a lot shallower. So the UK is much closer to uh, Silicon Valley. Uh, Europe is snapping on on UK's heel. 
And even Austria now has uh, three unicorns, I'm pleased to tell you. So uh, so things are spreading. So we can't rest on our laurels. We've got to keep uh, running fast. And are you invested in those three unicorns in your your native country? Sadly not, but I hope the two next ones that are coming up <laughs> will be. Okay. So, so on the subject of startups, we hear an awful lot around Cambridge and, and people will be familiar with the saying, it's a low-risk environment to do high-risk things. But the reality is still around 90% of startups never make it. So, you know, we've talked at the top of the podcast about your early successes. What I would like to know is, have there been any any failures or anything, anything that was less successful? And if there are any examples that you can, are you shaking your head? It's like, no. <laughs> if there are any examples, did you learn anything from them that you can share? Oh, perish the thought. We never have any failures, you know. <laughs> So uh, if you look at the stats, uh, it's almost 50% uh, of the, between 30 and 50% of the companies that we back uh, never make it. They, they, they become complete failures. And as people rightly say, you uh, often learn more from your failures than you learn from your, uh, from your successes and, and difficulties that, uh, that companies go through. And that's why having a little bit of gray hair sometimes helps, uh, uh, you know, young teams to avoid the pitfalls that we've seen uh, many times over. They, of course, have to do with cash flow. You know, companies uh, don't get into trouble because they make losses. Companies get into trouble because they run out of money. Uh, So it's cash flow that's really the number one uh, parameter that one needs to run these early stage companies uh, at. I mean, rarely a week goes past on this sort of podcast where we don't reference the university and the role that the university plays in the ecosystem and, uh, you know, the spin-outs that come out of the university. I think Cambridge is doing well in terms of its role that it plays to encourage entrepreneurship. Um, so maybe, I mean, feel free to give your opinion of Cambridge, but maybe on a broader, either UK or international perspective, what do you think the role is of universities in terms of encouraging entrepreneurship and what more can be done to support the creation of successful spin-out businesses? Well, fortunately, uh, Cambridge uh, does have a, a great uh, track record in spinning out companies starting with the fact that Cambridge never made the mistake that lots of other European universities made of actively discouraging spin-outs. I always felt that that one of the greatest contributions that Cambridge University made in the early days, uh, even uh, at the time when I started Acorn Computers, was, uh, was an attitude of benign neglect. They did not actively stop spin-outs, which lots of other universities did. They let them happen. So that was a good start. And then, you know, I helped uh, set up Cambridge Enterprise, uh, which arguably is one of the better CTOs, one of the better IPO transfer offices uh, in the world, because they're very supportive of these academics that want to start companies. And uh, they don't get too snarled up in endless negotiations about IP. So the thing that still needs to be improved across the country is these IP negotiations, which create a a lot of bad blood. And I've had a formulaic approach to that for many years, which fortunately uh, has been adopted by Imperial, for example, where there is a certain amount of equity, typically around between 5 and 10%, that a startup company gives to the university in exchange for all the IP that uh, it needs. 
And it needs to be a formula rather than endless uh, negotiations. And that is still far too slow because every week that you can gain by spinning the company out is a week gained getting to the market with a new product. And on the subject of spinning companies out, you're actually actively involved in a couple of our key programs here in Cambridge, the Impulse Program from the Maxwell Centre and Ignite at the Cambridge Judge Business School. Companies like River Lane, New Quantum, Spirea, you know, they've gone through that program and it's it's really helped them. Is, is your view that those programs are essential for producing the next Acorn computers and arms and, and you know, and such like in the future? Absolutely. They're they're absolutely a key part to to the ecosystem. I always say that these spin-outs are a team sport. Uh, You need all the different players to support the key player, which is the entrepreneur. We need the university, we need the venture capital industry, we need the government creating the right environment, and we need the lawyers and accountants uh, to support them. And we need the Maxwell Centre and these incubators and schools to help them with it. And we should also mention you have your own program in Austria as well, don't you? Yes, it's actually the Ignite program that I run in Austria as well, which has been incredibly successful. We've run it for eight years and we've managed to raise over 200 million euros for these uh, startup companies. Now, we're almost at the end of our conversation with you. So I would like to ask your permission if you will indulge us in a couple of personal questions for you, please. Sure. (laughs) I believe you were advised to learn English and Russian as they were the most important languages in the world, but you encouraged your children to learn Chinese. Has that been good advice? Do they use it? Should we all be doing crash courses in Chinese? And did you learn Chinese? <laughs> oh, I tried. <laughs> no, the, the story is that when I was 15 years old, my, my father uh, sent me to the UK, to Cambridge, to learn English with the argument that English is the most important language in the world. And when My children were 15 years old. Uh, I sent them to Beijing and Shanghai to learn Chinese because I felt that was the most important language in the world, given that they speak uh, uh, English and German already. And they did, and they enjoyed it very much, but they're not actually making a lot of uh, use of it, other than, you know, occasionally with uh, Chinese friends, because um, they live in the UK and New Zealand and in Austria and don't spend so much time in China. Uh, But I think it will be increasingly important to understand and speak Mandarin. So you've also made some very impressive hires and worked with some really interesting people in in your career. So a few of them of note, Chris Kerry, Steve Ferber, Andy Hopper, Professor Sir Richard Friend, and, and many more. So my question is, if you could hire anyone or work with anyone, who would that person be? Oh, my goodness. Uh, this is, uh, uh, you know, if you look at the, the really uh, great people to hire, of course, they wouldn't be hired by me. They, they, they would, if anything, they would hire me, uh, you know, the, the, the really great titans of, uh, of the industry, you know, like, uh, I don't know, Bill Gates or uh, Elon Musk. I mean, Elon Musk is a, an unbelievable phenomenon, despite the fact that he is not uh, covering himself in glory with his behavior at Twitter. But to answer your question more realistically, it's really outstanding scientists that are keen to translate the, the amazing contributions that they've made, and some of which uh, you know, have been awarded Nobel Prizes for it, help them working together with them to build great companies. So if you want to 
pick a person. The most recent Nobel laureate in Austria is called Anton Zeilinger that I've known for many years. And as it happens, I, I am just uh, working on a, on a new startup with him. No, that's wonderful. Well, Herman, thank you so much for your time. We're very grateful. I'm sure that our audience are going to find the conversation fascinating. So, uh, so thank you very much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Today's show was produced by Carl Homer of Cambridge TV and supported by our media partner, Business Weekly. The Cambridge Tech Podcast is available on all major podcast platforms and on cambridgetechpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review. It will really help others discover the show. If you are a startup looking to grow in Cambridge, the Bradfield Centre offers a range of flexible membership packages which put you in control of your office and home working mix. There's a vibrant, collaborative atmosphere, on-site cafe, plenty of green outside space and regular member social events. For more information, visit bradfieldcentre.com or call 01223 919 600.